Uh, like Bernadette said, uh, I'm going to be continuing our Christmas series. We're doing a Christmas with great anticipation. We're looking through the prophecies that Isaiah gave uh, some like seven or 800 years before Jesus was born about the birth of Jesus. So we're going to be continuing in that. We'll be in Isaiah 9. If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to that. There's also Bibles on the sides or in the back if you want to grab one of those. Uh, but before we begin, I just wanted to pray and open this up. So will you pray with me? Just thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for what you're doing uh, in our community. The things that Bernadette just mentioned, uh, both in our church and outside of our church, the ways that we're able to, to love our community well. Just thank you for the love you have for uh, Hopkinton, for Milford, for this area, um, for this place that you've planted us. Just pray this morning that we'll be aware of what it is that you're saying to each and every one of us. Speak to us clearly uh, and uh, just make us more aware of your love for us and the great links that you went through in order to show that love to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about what we anticipate at Christmas. Lots of people look forward to different things. I'm sure we each have our favorite. Maybe you're a party person. You really like all the parties. Maybe you're just a foodie and you don't care if anybody else is around as long as you get some of the good food. That's fair too. Uh, just people make deliveries to your house and don't say hi, you're good. Maybe you really love seeing family who you don't get to see very often. Some friends who you always get together with around this time of year. Maybe you're the person who, more than anything, looks forward to Christmas weekends, getting a few extra days off from work, being able to sleep in a little bit, uh, not have quite as much going on. I'm sure that we all know what kids look forward to at this time of year, right? There's the, the, the calm one, which is Christmas break. That's nice. No homework, whatever. And then the really exciting thing, which is presents. Every kid wants presents, and I'm sure, I won't embarrass any of you, but I'm sure there are more than one adult in this room right now who gets just a little bit excited about getting a present at Christmas time. You have something that you're really looking forward to, and you kind of can't wait till that day when you get to open that up. Maybe that's you. I won't ask. But kids are looking forward to Christmas for the presents. So it got me thinking, what gifts are kids asking for this year? We don't have any kids. So, you know, I need to do research to find this stuff out. So I started looking up what gifts are really popular this year for kids. And I came up with some really good ideas. So I know all the parents in the room have already purchased everything. Maybe the grandparents haven't. So if you're a grandparent and you haven't purchased everything, here's a few ideas of Christmas gifts for you. Here we go. The first one, maybe the most strange of all, feisty pets. Look at that thing. This is popular. I'm not making this up. That thing is popular. They have a few different taglines, which I'll leave to your imagination with that, that snarl. But it goes from being this really cute looking animal to not so cute looking. Uh, kids really like it, I guess. Um, if it was my kid, I'm not sure that I would want to trip over that thing at 3 a.m. <laughs> like with the snarl and all that. That might be a little bit much for me. So, you know, 
you make the decision on that. Maybe that's a good grandparent gift. Something you don't have to see all the time. The next one, LOL surprise dolls. If you're a parent that has gift-giving anxiety, you're nervous that they're not going to like what it is that you give them, this is the gift for you. It's perfect. You don't choose anything. You grab a ball and you wrap it. And then on Christmas morning, they open it. And it's a surprise for everyone. No one knows what's inside there. I mean, they have pictures of their dolls and whatnot. But you don't know which one it is ahead of time. It's just in that little ball, all glittery and, yeah, interesting looking. $70 and you too cannot make a decision. Yeah, I know. Yeah. The, the price we go to not make decisions is pretty amazing. The next one, Twin Hatchimals. Last year's hot gift is back and it's better than ever because what's better than one Beanie Baby stuffed animal looking thing? Two Beanie Baby stuffed animal looking things that are identical. You lose one, it doesn't matter. You have an automatic backup. Two for the price of one, all in that same egg that hatches. It's perfect. Twins, it's what you want this Christmas. The next one is this interesting thing called fingerlings. It's kind of obvious what it is. It's like little rings that go on your finger. Cute little baby animals. They come in three different types. Monkeys, unicorns, and sloths. <laughs> yes, you heard me right. Sloths. Because those are incredibly hot this year. For whatever reason, the world's slowest moving animal that's not, it's kind of cute, I guess. I don't know. It, a face only a mother could love. I don't know. But they're super, super hot. So here's my tip to you. Get your kid a sloth. You'll thank me later. And finally, the perfect DIY, low-cost gift that every kid is making. Slime. You want something to do after dinner? Slime. You can buy it pre-made if you want. Or just a little cornstarch and water, food coloring. Switch out the cornstarch for glue if you want. I think that probably seems a little messier to me, but I don't know. I've never made it. And you have this really gross, gooey, weird textured substance that will cover all of your kitchen counters. The perfect Christmas Day treat for you and the kids. Just what you wanted. DIY for Christmas this year. There you go. Okay, I won't give you any others. That's enough. You should have been taking notes. Hopefully you got some good Christmas ideas. Lots of good gift ideas for Christmas this year. And you know, at Christmas, we're always looking forward to something. That's part of the reason that after Christmas, it's like, uh, okay, it's done. It's like this, this letdown. We're always anticipating leading up to it. In the middle of all that, it can be really easy to focus on things that maybe aren't that important that bring us momentary happiness, but don't last that long. Things like feisty pets, of course. And in that, we have this whole anticipation building on momentary pleasures, right? On Christmas Eve, thousands of kids across the world go to sleep knowing that under that tree, there's going to be something. They may not know what it is. Maybe they do. Who knows? Maybe it's an open gift policy at their house. But they go to bed knowing that something good is going to happen in the morning. 
2,000 years ago, no one went to bed knowing that something good was going to happen in the morning. No one anticipated what was getting ready to come. They didn't have a clue that something big was beginning to happen, that the Messiah was being born as a baby in a little manger. And so that's what I want to talk about, this surprise that we see happening. And so in Isaiah 9, if you opened up your Bible, uh, you get a star, you were working ahead, um, but open to Isaiah 9, verse 2. And let's read this first part of it. Just three short verses today. It says that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has come. Now, this is Isaiah's intro into a much more famous prophecy that you'll all recognize when we read it. But one of the great things about having these prophecies in Isaiah and other parts of the Old Testament, 700, 1,000 years before Jesus was born, is that we start to see just how big and far-reaching God's plan was. If you ever wondered if Jesus being born as a baby was plan B, C, or D, all you have to do is to look at these prophecies and you start to realize that it was plan A. And he was telling us about it a long ways in the past. He was letting us know what he was going to do in the future. It wasn't a surprise to him. Jesus coming to earth as a baby was God's first plan. It was his master plan. It wasn't a surprise. He wanted it to happen this way. But the Israelites were shocked because no one prophesied that on that exact day in Bethlehem, in a manger, a guest room with a barn view, that Jesus was going to be born, that the Messiah was going to be born. No one expected it in the least on that day for it to happen. And then suddenly something happens. On, in a land of deep darkness, light begins to dawn. Whenever light, whenever darkness turns into light, you know what's happening? God's beginning to work. God's acting and he's starting to move. There's something that he's up to. He, been, he begins creating in that moment, creating something new, which leads into verses six and seven, the, the rest of the prophecy. Look at this with me. It says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You know, this... If you think about it, this is probably one of Isaiah's kind of strangest prophecies that he gives. To us, we've, we've heard it enough. It doesn't sound that strange. But over like 50 years, he prophesied enough to fill a 60-something chapter book. It's a lot of different prophecies. And they're filled with prophecies about wars, about kings being overturned, new kings coming up, government scandal, bad things happening. But you know what? That's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. I can name 10 TV shows to you that have that exact same plot. We know that that happens a lot. It's not good. But war, that's pretty obvious. That happens all the time. Government scandal, we may know a lot more about that than we would like. We see this type of stuff all the time. 
These are regular things that happen. But seeing a child called God, that's a little bit more unique. That's a little unexpected. It's not what you would normally find in a TV show or a movie or a book. It's something out of the ordinary, unlike the rest of his prophecies. And it brings up this question of why would God choose this way? Why does he choose to be born as a child? It's not like that's a great way to be born. Why would God, who has everything, knows everything, can do everything, choose to be born and have his diaper changed? It just doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't line up. And how can God, who the whole premise of who God is is that he's completely different from us, that he's other than, how can he become one of us? How does that come together? John Oswald is a theologian, and he wrote this, asking the same question. He said, if Jesus is transcendent, if he's morally perfect, if he's infinite, if he's eternal, then how can he be with us who are created, who are sinful, finite, and mortal? But this sets the stage for the most astounding event in history, that the transcendent becomes one of the created. The morally perfect experiences what it is to have sinned. The infinite becomes finite, and the immortal experiences mortality. What he's pointing to is this thing that Isaiah tells us, that a child is born and a son is given. And with that, Isaiah tells us about one of the most complex and kind of difficult things to grasp that we have as followers of Jesus. This thing called the incarnation, that, God is, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man at the same exact time. That's complicated. He's 100% of both at the same time. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author, said that the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. And that's what we believe as followers of Jesus, that, God, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And this verse in Isaiah points to that. If you split it up for a second, do a little sentence diagramming with me, if you will. Uh, it says, a child is born. A child. There's only one way that human children are born, and that's to what? Human parents. Yes, it's, it's easy. A woman, a woman. Yes, exactly. I like sci-fi, but as far as I know, in real world time, there hasn't been any instances of other than being born to humans. As far as I know, that, that, that's, that's not something that's actually happening. So when he says a child is born, he's pointing very directly to the humanity of Jesus. He's born. He's a child. He's one of us. And then he says a son is given. And with that, he points to the divinity of who Jesus is, a son, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is given, not something that's born, not something that we kind of make happen, so to speak, something that we have any authority in but something that's only given to us. The Son of God is given to us. And with that, he shows us what the incarnation is, that, God, that Jesus is both 100% man, 100% God at the same exact time. He's not 75% man and 25% God. He's not 75% God and 25% man. I think I flipped those, yes. 
He's not, it's not a pick and choose sort of thing where he decides which one is more powerful at the moment that he wants it to be more powerful. Well, I'm going to go pray for the sick. I'd rather be more God right now. Well, I'm going to go eat a big meal. I'd rather be more of a man right now. It's not that sort of thing. He's both at the exact same time, 100% of each. The math that doesn't add up, but the reality is that that's what it is. 100% and 100%. One isn't more powerful than the other. They're both equal and complete in and of themselves all the time. So let's look at this. You know, I think for us as people who live 2,000 years after Jesus was born, it's a little easier to grapple with the fact that he's divine. Maybe that's just me, because we worship him, right? We don't want to worship another human. Mark's a great guy. I don't feel a need to worship him. You know, like that's just not something we usually go for. Um, But worshiping God, that makes sense. So Jesus is God, we worship him, good. But the fact that he's fully human can be a little hard for us sometimes to grapple with, to to fully want to embrace. But the reality is, is that the Bible tells us that he was completely and totally human. He was born, just like we are. He grew up, had a somewhat normal childhood, I would assume. And then he aged. He didn't go from two to 18 in six months. He went from 2 to 18 in 16 years, the same way that we do. Everything about that was normal for a human. Luke 2.52 tells us that he grew in wisdom. He matured. Hebrews 5.8 said that he uh, learned obedience to God through suffering. Very similar to, unfortunately, how we often learn it. The Gospels tell us that he was hungry and tired. And they weren't just making it up to make us feel better. I think that was pretty realistic for him. He had the same emotions that we do. He was tempted in very similar ways. He just didn't sin, which that's a pretty big difference. But Hebrews 2.17 tells us that he was fully human in every way. That's an important thing for us. And in fact, if I could kind of push out your expectations of this maybe a little bit. All indications from scripture are that he's still fully human and fully God. He's just one step ahead of us. He's already been resurrected. He's with the Father already. But that's not something that he gave up. It's still a part of who he is as Jesus, as the Son of God. And then we come to his divinity, the fact that he was and is fully God. You know, Jesus knew that he was God. I've heard people debate this a little bit, but I think Jesus is pretty direct on this point. He tells us multiple times that he's God in ways that would have gotten him killed. It's not something you say if you didn't want to die. You know, like it's pretty clear. Look at John 8:58. He says this small little sentence, but he says, before Abraham was, I am. And with that, he utters the statement that probably led to his crucifixion down the road, that probably led to him being killed, because that's what happened if you called yourself God. Because I am is the divine name. It's the name that God told the Israelites to call him all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout their history. He said to call him the I am. The first time that we see this is with Moses in Exodus 3.14 where Moses is kind of having this back and forth with God when God's a burning bush. Moses had a, he was 
pretty strong character. I'll just say that. If God came to me in a burning bush, I'm not sure I would talk back that much. But he was having a little back and forth about it, arguing a little bit. And he said, fine. Well, how am I supposed to tell anybody who sent me? How are they ever going to believe that this guy came from you, that you told them to send me? And God tells him this in Exodus 3.14. He says, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites, that I am has sent me. When Jesus says, I am, when he says that simple statement, before Abraham was, I am, he's declaring very clearly in that moment that he knows that he's God. He's not making a lighthearted statement. He's not, it's not a casual throwaway. He's making a very direct statement that he knew what the end result was going to be from making that statement. You could be killed for doing that, and he knew that in the moment. He knew that he was God, and he called it. And it's important with that to understand that one part doesn't overrule the other, that one's not more powerful than the other. And that's often what we think with his divinity, with the fact that he's God, that that's kind of overruling his humanity at times. But Jesus, if he would have done that, that would have kind of changed or transformed his community, his humanity. It would have made him less human than he actually was. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, talks about this in a kind of beautiful uh, song if you read the whole section. And he says this, he says that in his very nature, Jesus was God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself of his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Paul tells us here that Jesus willfully gave up some of what he had as God, in order to take on full and complete humanity, that he knew what he was doing and that he willingly did that so that he could also willingly die for us, so that he could give up everything for us. It was an exchange that he knew about ahead of time and that he stepped into. And I think in that, to kind of make it a little bit more personal, if we downplay the humanity of Jesus, we kind of lose our best example of what it looks like to have a relationship with God. Because Jesus as fully human is the perfect example of what it looks like for us to have relationship with God, to commune with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus. And he shows us that. He was constantly communicating with the Holy Spirit who made him strong when he was, in, when he was being tempted, who Get, showed him who to pray for at various times, where to go to cast out demons. The Spirit was leading him constantly. And Jesus was constantly going off by himself to pray, to connect with his Father, he said, to pray and to speak to the Holy Spirit. And in that kind of continual, unique relationship with God, we start to see how he was formed, and we see how we are formed how we can connect to the Holy Spirit, how we can build our relationship with God through that, through mirroring who Jesus is as fully man. That's the reality of who he is and what we believe. Now, I fully acknowledge that a lot of this requires 
that little thing called faith. Uh, because this is different, right? It's not something that we usually can kind of grapple with. It's not an idea we would come up on our own. It requires believing that what God says is what it actually is. That this is the reality of it. And I think it requires an openness to the mysteries of God. Being willing to kind of grapple with that and say, okay, God, you know more than I do in that. Because unfortunately, Jesus didn't leave a copy of his journal. That would be very nice. He didn't leave any notes behind that said, at this exact moment, the Holy Spirit said this. Or at this moment, I made that decision on my own. I didn't cross the water because God told me to. I crossed it because I wanted to. Who knows? We don't have any of that type of stuff. He didn't leave us a play-by-play of what his life looks like when he realized he was fully God. If that happened when he was four or when he was 20, we don't know. We don't know how all of that fit together in his mind, but we know that that's the reality. And we see the child and the son grow and mature together to become the Savior, to become the Son of God who we know. And the question at the end of all of this is just the most obvious. Why? Why do this? It's complicated. It's unnecessary. We would never choose this. Never. None of us would ever choose if we were immortal to become mortal. And in fact, I would say humanity is more obsessed than ever with figuring out ways to become immortal. That's all we want. We want to figure out ways to live longer and longer and longer, to be able to evade the things that Jesus willingly took, to be able to sidestep suffering and death. And yet this is the path that Jesus took. So why? Why did he choose this path? Well, look at the end of verse 7 with me. It says that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Zeal's kind of an older word that we don't use very often uh, anymore, but it's used several times throughout the Old Testament. And here's what it, what it means. It's kind of defined as either jealousy or as kind of a stronger, extreme uh, enthusiasm or passion, something that moves the person to action. The word for zeal implies this action that's birthed out of a deep emotion, something that almost can't be controlled, something that forces that person to act, that pushes them. We've seen that with jealousy, right? Sometimes even with enthusiasm. You're at a Patriots game, they score, and you just can't hold it in, so you jump up and then you trip over the chair, and it's what it is. You just can't control it. You see it coming and you still can't control it. We, we're moved out of that type of emotion. It pushes us. It forces us to act, to do something. And it seems almost wrong to imply that that's what leads God in this moment, but that's what he's telling us. That that kind of human emotion, acting in such a human way, that that's what drives Jesus to do what it is that he did. That's what pushed him. And in that, we start to learn something about who God is and God's plan for us, why Jesus would give up so much to become one of us, to step out, to act in the way that he did it. And it's simply this, because Jesus is jealously passionate about saving us, about saving all of humanity. He's so passionate about it that he couldn't keep it in 
that he had to act. And so he stepped forward and he did this thing that none of us would ever choose to do. It moved him into action. Why would he give up so much to become one of us on that night in Bethlehem, to become a baby, to have his diaper changed? to have to have a cow lick his face all night long. Why would he do that? This is unnecessary. He did it because the love that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has for each and every one of us, for all of humanity, is so powerful, is so strong, is so zealous that it requires action. And it forced him to move. And so he moved. That deep, powerful, emotional love left him no choice but to act. And so Jesus came, and he became a baby. He came as fully God and fully man to change things completely, to bring a total once and for all answer to evil and sin. He didn't come to tweak a system. He came to completely and totally abolish it. He wanted to end it once and for all. This child, this baby, born in a manger on Christmas Day, who we call Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, this child brought the infinite to our finite. He brought the immortal to our mortal. And on a surprising night long ago, even the angels couldn't keep it in. They were so excited about what had just happened that they burst into scene and did something about it. They told us what was happening. So as we come to an end, I want to read from the Christmas story in Luke 2. And you know, Luke's not just giving us the script for the Charlie Brown Christmas uh, special or uh, all future Christmas Eve services. In the angel's message, Luke is really giving us a theological focus for what was happening that night, for what, was God, for what God was up to, that it was truly good news for all, that the Messiah had come, that God had come to earth. So read this with me, Luke 2, verse 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace, on those, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left him and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. On that quiet night, the angels shattered the silence. On a people living in deep darkness, a light had dawned. God was doing something. The angels cry in their song, woke shepherds from the sleep, from their sleep, and with that started to alert the world to the reality of what God was up to, that he was acting, that something amazing was happening, that the moment of great anticipation when God became man, when God's grand plan was enacted, when he chose to start to do something that couldn't be undone, 
that was going to change everything, that that very moment was happening right then and right there, that God had come. And much to everyone's surprise, it was happening through a baby. The worship team wants to come back up. I just want to encourage you this morning to reflect on this reality this Christmas, this morning and this Christmas. Reflect on the reality of the unexpected, the surprising, the supernatural, the maybe strange and slightly weird of Christmas, of what God chose to do, of how Jesus came and moved among us. Let the amazing reality that Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, chose to come to give up so much, to live and to die so that we could know him, so that we could live so that we could have that relationship. And I want to encourage you to let the reality of that really powerful emotion sink in. Because that, that's who God is. God is moved so powerfully by his love for us, so passionately, so jealously, that he had to act. That he had to act for each and every one of us, for all of humanity. It required it. He had no choice but to move out of that deep, powerful, emotional love for us. And so this morning, let's just worship out of that reality. Does that sound good? Let's worship out of that expectation that Jesus is here. That he did so much so that he could be here with us. And that he wants to meet with us in this morning, in that same excited, joyful, jealous way. Amen? If you want to stand, the worship team's going to lead us in a few songs, and then I'll be back up to uh, lead us in a time of prayer.